Let us pray for the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts during the service of the word using Psalms 19. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. A reading from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. The word of the Lord. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another, with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dawn. We've been uh, working our way through Matthew, and, you know, a chapter or so back was the passage in which the religious leaders of first century Palestine, the, the pastors of Jesus' day, had already begun plotting how to kill Jesus of Nazareth. They've called him the devil. They want him dead. And if you could imagine putting yourself in the shoes of those first followers of Jesus, those earliest disciples, they had been nurtured on messianic prophecies of what would happen when the Messiah came to the earth. When Messiah came, all God's promises to Israel would be fulfilled. Uh, the temple would be restored and renewed in its fullest sense where God himself would come to dwell uh, among it. There would be such blessing that mountains would be covered with, with vineyards, every, every foot of them so covered with fruit that rivers of wine would come down to the earth. The nations would beat their swords into plowshares. Peace would rule over the earth, and God would bring vengeance upon all of his enemies. And for a first-century Jew in Palestine, they would have understood that when Jesus said he was the Christ, when he allowed himself to be called the Messiah, they would have understood that this is the figure that's being spoken of here. And they would be expecting Rome to fall, uh, legions of soldiers to be raised up, uh, righteousness and peace and justice to fill the earth. And instead what happens is uh, not very many people follow Jesus. Out of maybe a couple million people uh, in the eastern end of the Mediterranean, you know, maybe a few thousand started following Jesus, and a lot of those doubted and walked away, and the pastors tried to kill him. And so they're probably scratching their head thinking, okay, there's something we're not seeing here. There's some little piece of this that we're not getting. All right, Jesus, why is it going like this? Jesus, you are one of the most unsuccessful evangelists in the history of Judaism. Nobody seems to be following you. You're not very effective. What's going on? And Jesus begins to answer those questions, that experience that they're going through of wondering what gives the Messiah, if this is him, why, why aren't all these things happening? And, and he answers in a number of ways. We're going to look at one of those answers this week. We're going to look at uh, several other answers about yeast and dough and mustard seeds and trees uh, next week. But uh, first we're going to look at Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at the first 23 verses in your pew Bible. 
we're on page 1517 if you want to look there. Um, and uh, this is uh, the Word of Christ, actually page 1516. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 1. You've heard this before, perhaps, if you've been in church, but, but have you heard it? Have you heard what Jesus is saying? That's the question. Verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. And some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more. He will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they do hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you are hearing, but they did not hear it. Listen, then, to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since he has no root... He lasts only a short time when trouble or persecution comes because of the word. He quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. What is Jesus trying to tell us here? Um, He's trying to tell us that his kingdom comes differently from other kingdoms. 
He's going to tell us that the soils, they're different kinds of hearts. And he's going to talk about the seed. First, Jesus is saying, my kingdom comes differently than the other kingdoms of the world. He says, my kingdom comes, verse 23, through hearing. But the one who received the seed, he hears it, he understands it, he produces a crop. My kingdom comes through hearing. This, the seed, you see, is the message of Jesus, he says. It's the message of the kingdom. That's the message of the king, of Jesus, of his salvation, of his redemption, of his power to seek and save that which is lost and to set prisoners free. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom doesn't come to those who are good at gaining a hearing. See, that's the way the world does it. The way the world has influence, the way the world establishes its kingdoms is you have to gain a hearing. That's what all these debates are about right now with presidential, you know, you know, nominees, you know, uh, potential nominees, Republicans, Democrats, all of them trying to edge out the others, trying to be a little louder, a little more persuasive, a little more polished, a little more authentic than everybody else so that everybody hears and says, that's the next king. That's the next president. That's how our kingdoms come. That's how we influence in this world. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom is different. Mine doesn't come to those who can gain a hearing. It comes to those who are able to hear. My kingdom comes to those who can listen, who can listen well, who can listen deeply, who can realize the implications and who in their hearts can understand. My kingdom, he says, comes to those who have the ability to sit down and take in what someone else is saying. My kingdom comes through hearing. He says, without it, kingdom power cannot come into your life. It cannot flood your life. It cannot set you free. The kingdom power cannot change your relationships in your life and cannot do my redeeming work unless you are good at hearing. Hearing, listening. It's the primary skill of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Can you hear? Can you listen? This is so different from other kingdoms of the world. You think of how Rome came. You know, the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome, came through force and subjugation, enslavement, systemic cruelty, systemic violence, you know, doing horrible forms of torture, throwing people into arenas with, with wild animals. You know, that Rome came under the power of, of the boot, of the sword, and of the cross in its old form of crucifixion, public shaming, systemic murder of entire populations. It's all top-down. And today, you know, in our culture, we found somewhat more, somewhat less violent ways to do this, but still, when we want to, to get an agenda across, when we want to, to influence things, when we want to further the kingship of whatever concern we have. We do pickets, we do protests, we do boycotts, we do marketing campaigns, and none of that's wrong. That's just getting people to do what we want, always trying to gain a hearing. And so we wonder, okay, Jesus, you've got all these people not following you. Why don't you do a press conference? Let's get you, Jesus, in front of the cameras. Let's get you on CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. Let's get you before the whole world, Al Jazeera, everybody. You can do some miracles live. You can do miracles by request. Everybody will see you growing arms back and doing these things. And, and then your kingdom will come and people will realize you're the king and they'll bow down and worship you. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not how my kingdom comes. My kingdom doesn't come 
as power from without. My kingdom comes through hearing. Think of the impact on a field, for example, of a bulldozer. You have an empty field. Bulldozer can come and it can scrape off the surface of the, the dirt. It can dig a hole. It can move dirt from one end to the other. It can, it can move that dirt back to the other end. It can fill in the hole. But all of that is from the outside in kind of change. The impact it can have on a field is from the top down, and it can really not get very far beyond the surface. But that's how our world does things. That's how our world does kingdoms. Jesus contrasts his kingdom to a seed, to a tiny little seed, perhaps invisible even, so tiny. And a seed works very, very differently from a bulldozer. A seed gets down below the surface. A seed gets deep down inside, into the heart, into the soil, And it sits there and it does seemingly nothing for the longest time. But all the while that seed is germinating, that seed is working beneath the surface from inside. And then eventually you won't notice it if you're watching it. But if you walk away and come back a few days later, you notice breaking the surface of the soil, this tiny little green sapling pops out, just a little sprout, and then it grows. And then it starts to multiply. And then it starts to transform. And then suddenly you have a grassy field where before, there was just dirt. It's the power of a seed, Jesus says. It starts out little, but its energies then can be rechanneled into a life-giving garden and make you alive, and it can make you grow. I've got a photo here. Uh, this is of the Los Plateau in China. Um, the Los Plateau is, there, there are 30 million people who, are actually 50 million people who live here. It's about 650,000 square kilometers of barren dirt. Uh, it was heavily overgrazed. You could see the terraces where it was heavily farmed, but it was farmed in season and out, nonstop, and it was grazed. Even the hillsides were grazed and farmed such that, that everything ultimately died and it could no longer support life. And what happened is all of the soil, then this thin, you know, low soil began to blow away and it became uninhabitable until the Chinese government uh, did some research, did some work, and it made people stop farming the hillsides. It gave them sustainable ways to farm just the little terraces. It kept their goats and their sheep from grazing and eating up all the vegetation, and this barren, empty wasteland was transformed. We have another picture here. Um, Before and after, the only difference is the seed was allowed to do its work unhindered. The seed was able to get deep inside the soil and sprout up. The seed was allowed to then expand and flourish and what had been a dark, desolate, uninhabitable desert became lush and verdant and green. That's what Jesus is saying. My kingdom comes that way from the inside out, from the bottom up, and it gets inside of you and it makes you alive. Thank you. Jesus says, my kingdom, it's not like other kingdoms, but to those who hear, he says, to those who understand, my message will get inside of you like a seed, it will transform you, and it will come alive. His kingdom's not like other kingdoms. Okay, so what are the soils? He talks about four different soils, and the soils are four different kinds of human hearts, four different kinds of soil that can receive or not receive the seed into them. 
reason he's talking about this is because it's not really obvious. You know, a seed under the ground, looking at the surface of the dirt, maybe seeing that little sprout. You can't necessarily tell what's going to happen or where it's going to go. It's not really obvious, Jesus is saying, who my real followers are. It's not obvious who's really a Christian, who's really walking with Jesus. There are some people, for example, who, who think that they're Christians and they might not be. There are other people who doubt whether God could ever love them. They doubt whether they really believe, whether they're really a Christian, and yet they are absolutely redeemed by Christ, and they will be with him forever. And then uh, there, there are those whose hearts are conflicted, and these are different kinds of soil. It's very different from Rome. If you were under the kingdom of Rome, you knew it. You knew it because Roman banners were hanging from the columns. You knew it because Roman gods were worshipped in the temple. You knew it because Roman armies were stationed in your town. Roman officers were at each intersection. The Roman emperor was the one to whom you offered incense. You stick your hand in your pocket, you pull out a coin. The Roman emperor's face is on the coin that you use in the shop or in the market. If you were in the kingdom of Rome, it was obvious. With the kingdom of Jesus, with the kingdom of heaven... It's not so obvious, and so Jesus compares uh, us to different kinds of soil. Uh, the way farming worked in the ancient world is a little different. Today, we, you know, we get like combines and all sorts of tractors and stuff, and we dig little, you know, little burrows, and we drop stuff down, we cover stuff up, and we fertilize the heck out of it, and probably spray it with insecticide beforehand and use Monsanto seeds. Uh, but uh, it was a little different then. Um, I'm not judging. The way, uh, the way farmers in the ancient world farmed is you had a plot of land. There might have been a path walking through it, but you got your plot of land, and you know where the borders are. And you take seed, pocket full of seed, and you might have a bag of seed, and you just started spreading it around. Spread it around, you keep walking, hand in, another handful, spread it around, hand in, another handful. And so it, and so it goes all over the place. There's seed everywhere and some of the seed ends up on that path over there where people are walking all the time and that's really compacted soil and some of it ends up in really good soil and some of it ends up in rocky soil and some of it ends up in a bunch of thorns and Jesus says that's what our hearts are like our hearts are different kinds of soil first you got the path that is hearing Jesus but hearing him with a hard heart because a path is compacted dirt and that seed will land on the path and it will not make its way beneath the surface. It just stays on the surface. It can stay on the surface for a really long time, or it can get brushed aside or have a bird come down and eat it. But it doesn't matter how much you immerse yourself in the life of church and theology and God and all of this stuff. It's just on the surface. It's never piercing your heart. It's never getting inside of you. The gospel hasn't gotten inside of you, and so it can't transform you because your heart is hard. It never penetrates the soil. Uh, Tim Keller says it this way. He asks whether the message of Jesus has ever taken you under its power. He asks, has there ever been a time when the Christian faith began to dawn on you and you began to see things about yourself that you've never seen before? Is there ever a time when you felt like you were waking up from slumber to the truth as you've never known it before? When you, when you felt like Jesus has your name on him? Uh, when you say, no, this is talking about me, I need this. Have you, have you ever sensed the gospel of Jesus Christ, his salvation, thrilling you, moving you, that the truth had you by the throat, as you will, like it was picking you up? If it's, if it's only intellectual, if it's only theory, it's just a philosophy to you. It's, it's just theoretical. It hasn't broken the surface. Jesus is saying that's the hard path. The hard path hasn't opened up 
and has not yet received the message of Jesus. And he talks about another kind of soil. This is what he calls the rocky soil. Uh, We think that means soil with a lot of rocks in it. That's not what rocky soil meant to them. What rocky soil meant to them was not that there was gravel mixed in. What rocky soil was to them was thin soil just over the top of bedrock. Um, You know, you start digging a hole, eventually you get the bedrock where everything is just just rock. If you're going to build, you know, a a 5,000, you know, foot skyscraper, you're going to dig down to bedrock and you're going to have your foundations in bedrock because the bedrock is only going to move in an earthquake. It's not going anywhere otherwise. And, And yet there are times where the bedrock can get very close to the surface. If you, for example, have a house in southern Illinois or if you have a house in north St. Louis County, you very likely have a basement. Why? Because the bedrock's way down there. So you can have a basement because you can dig it. If you live in parts of Jefferson County, you do not have a basement. Why? Because you dig three inches down and you're at bedrock. And when Jesus talks about rocky soil, he's talking about soil that's just a half inch or an inch of soil on top of bedrock that's just beneath the surface. And so the soil is shallow. It's too shallow to hold moisture. It's too shallow to allow roots to develop and to run deep. And so when the sun comes and beats down on on a plant that seems to flourish at first, but it's in shallow soil. It burns up because the moisture, it's not, there's not enough moisture. And it doesn't have the root to sustain it. And so it shrivels up and it dies. And he compares this to the Christian or the, the professing Christian who has a shallow heart, a heart that will not allow roots to develop. This is in one sense the opposite of the hard-hearted person. The hard-hearted person It's all intellectual. It never reaches into the heart. This person, Jesus says, they at first hear the message of Jesus and they respond emotionally at first with joy, receiving with joy, he says, springing up. They're excited about Christ. They're excited about Christianity, but it's all emotion. And then the sun beats down on them and they have no roots. They have no moisture because they're the wrong kind of soil. The plant's never going to live in that kind of soil. And so when suffering comes, they have to choose, what is it that I'm really living for? Am I really living for Jesus? Or am I really living for my career? Or this relationship I've got to have? Or my personal wealth? Or my personal comfort? Or my personal health? Or my sense of control or security? Because what happens for the person with the shallow heart? At first, Christianity looks exciting because I need security and Jesus can get me security. I need to be successful, and Jesus can help me be successful. I need to have this girl, and and if I baptize myself, then she might have me. And yet then suffering comes. The girl says no. She walks away. Your career falls apart, or you have to cut corners in order to succeed, and you have to choose then. Which is ultimate for you? Are you really in love with Jesus? Do you trust him, and do you want to walk with him? Or are you just using him to get the thing that you think you really have to have? The girl, the career, the security, whatever. Because when suffering comes, you have to pick one or the other. And Jesus is saying that those with a shallow heart, every single time, when God takes away from them the thing that they feel they need most, or when they have to choose between their Savior and their other Savior, they're going to go the other way and turn their back on Jesus and go after what they really feel they need.
You see, it's because they want a blesser and not a savior. They want relief, not salvation. Service provision, not a Lord. You know, when you think you're a sufferer in need of a solution instead of a sinner in need of a savior. That's the shallow soil, Jesus says. By contrast, you think of a young woman you might have heard of. You might have read some of her books. She was a beautiful young woman. She was homecoming queen in her high school. And shortly after graduation, she, with all of her friends, decided to go swimming at a little swimming hole. And they were having fun. They were having a great time. And she dove in and she misjudged the water. The water was too shallow. She snapped her neck. She severed her spine. She's a quadriplegic. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. She lost everything. And yet, you hear her. You read her books. She's in a wheelchair. She's paralyzed. And yet, she says, you know, if Jesus is Lord, if he's my Savior, then I can sit in this wheelchair. You see, if he's the Lord, if he's in charge, if he writes my story, if he's going to redeem everything that's evil and dark, if he is the one who is my lover, the lover of my soul, then if he's going to be glorified by this wheelchair, then I'm okay with it because I have Jesus. Jesus is what's ultimate. Yes, there's this suffering. Yes, it's horrible. Yes, I would have do anything for it not to be the case. But you don't understand. I have a Savior who is going to resurrect this body out of this chair. I have a Savior who is going to take care of me. He's going to take care of me physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way. He's going to surround me with people who will love me. He is my Savior. He's got my back. He's covered my sin. And if that is who Jesus is, then I'm okay with a calling to suffer. You see, that's deep soil. That's deep roots. That's a lot of life. Here she is, unable to move her hands, unable to move her legs, unable to clothe herself, unable to use the bathroom without assistance, and yet she is more alive than most of the people on planet Earth. It's the power. If, if, if the soil can receive the seed, it's the power of the gospel of Jesus to set a life free. So we got shallow soil. We got hard soil, a hard heart, a shallow heart, and yet we also have, Jesus says, the thorny soil. And this is actually the most tragic of all of the types of soil because this heart is hearing Jesus with a divided heart. Uh, you know, the seed, it's entered the soil. It takes root, but it doesn't bear fruit, and it just stays there. It's kind of stuck there. Uh, you know, the first two soils, any commentator will tell you, they're not Christians. If you're just trying to use Jesus to get something else, that's your real God and it can't save you. And if you're just all intellectual and you won't let it into your heart, you know, you, you, your, your heart is hard. And yet this third one, it's unclear. Is this a Christian? Is this not a Christian? Uh, you know, because what happens is the seed gets in there and it's genuinely in there. And, and yet other things, the concerns of this world, choke it greed and stuff and all the things we think we have to have. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's torn. This third soil, this thorny soil, it does genuinely want Jesus. And yet it also genuinely wants something else just as much. See, the first two soils are happy ultimately being in the world. They're happy with their life once they get their life the way they want it. And the, the fourth soil that Jesus is going to talk about, the good soil, it's happy with Jesus. This is the only soil that's not happy. This is the only soil that is utterly miserable. 
It's like it's stuck. You can't move forward. You can't go back. You're not going to deny Jesus because you know he's your savior. He's what you have to have. He's in your life. And yet you haven't yet figured out that the only way to really have joy in Jesus is by trusting him with the lordship of your life, trusting him with your relationships, trusting him with your career, trusting him with your health, trusting him with your family, trusting him for your security, trusting him for everything, and surrendering to him as your Lord. It's the only way to be happy in Jesus is to trust and obey him. And this soil is miserable. And you look at the description of it, of divided heart, the worries and the deceitfulness of wealth, the worries of this life. You know, you you don't find yourself growing in Christ. You don't say his life-changing power from year to year. Your relationship with him is choked and it's unhealthy because your priorities are all jacked up. The power of God is not coursing through your life and you, you don't have joy and you don't have peace and you're not really sure whether you're a Christian. You're always in doubt and... Perhaps you have come to see Jesus as your Savior and yourself as a sinner. But you're trapped. You're stuck. Where you are until something shifts, you can't go forward, you can't go backward. Your heart is divided, and of the four soils, you alone are miserable. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said, You can't fall off the boat, but you can fall on the boat, break all your bones, and spend the entire journey in the infirmary. That's not what we want for you. That's not what I want for you. And if that's where you are, then hear Jesus talk about the good soil, this fourth soil, hearing Jesus with a willing heart. You see incredible fruitfulness a hundred times, 60 times, 30 times what was sown, far beyond what you invest in your relationship with God. He invests in you and that heart that hears the message and lets it take root and lets it, lets it do its work as a heart that thrives. Those of you... Those of you who are parents, you know this better than I do. You know when your child is obeying you begrudgingly versus when your child is obeying you because your child loves you and trusts you. You can spot the difference. It's the difference between a divided heart and a pure, undivided heart that is ready and receptive to receive love, to receive grace, and to receive instruction. What kind of soil are you? That's the question. And if you don't like your answer, then the last point is this. Listen to the seed. The seed is the message of Jesus. The seed is the message of the gospel. The seed can take root in you. It goes into the ground. It's weak at first. It's vulnerable. Jesus comes to you gently like a seed in the earth. But if you let him into your heart, if you let him into your life, he can do amazing things. It's I mean, this is a crazy message about a king who came from heaven to earth and he triumphed by allowing himself to be tortured by the most brutal army in human history. And he absorbed the judgment of God into his very body and he died the most shameful death and he did it all on purpose. He did it because he loves you and he wouldn't have had it any other way. He bore your burden. He bore your sin and you don't bear it anymore if you trust in Jesus Whatever kind of soil you are, if you trust in him, you bear that no more. He has already done all the work for you. There is nothing more for you to do except to receive it and to let it soak in and let it grow inside of you. How many times, just in the last year, I've heard some of you come to me and describe how you don't know that you are a Christian when you first joined the church. 
and yet now God is doing something inside of you and you feel like you've, you, the scales have fallen off your eyes and what before was a doctrinal commitment and a commitment to follow Jesus sort of cognitively now has become something different and you've seen the power of God in your life. You've seen the power of Jesus. You've experienced that. You're experiencing that now and you are so alive now and you look back and you wonder... Gosh, was I even with Jesus then, or was I just going through the ropes? Had I really signed up for the course, or was I just auditing? You don't know, but that's because Jesus is working in you here, working in you now. The gospel is setting you free, and once barren lives are bearing fruit, parched earth is coming to life. That's the power of Jesus, the power of the seed. St. Paul says the gospel doesn't bring power. The gospel is the power of God to save. Listen to the seed. Look at it. Hear it. Let it crack through the soil and work inside of you, friends. And the promise of Jesus is this. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, the blessing of God will come in your life and he will make you alive. I got a story. Have you heard of Nabil Qureshi? Anybody heard of Nabil Qureshi? couple. We got a picture of him here. Um, <clears throat> Nabil Qureshi writes this. This is his story. Allahu Akbar. I bear witness that there is no God but Allah. I bear witness that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. These are the first words of the Muslim call to prayer, and they were the first words ever spoken to me. Moments after I was born... I've been told my father softly recited these words in my ear as his father had done for him and as all my forefathers had done for their sons since the time of Muhammad. We are Qureshis, descendants of the Quresh tribe, Muhammad's tribe. Our family stood sentinel over Islamic tradition. The words my ancestors passed down to me were more than ritual. They came to define my life as a Muslim in the West. Every day I sat next to my mother as she taught me to recite the Quran in Arabic. Five times a day I stood behind my father as he led our family in congregational prayer. By age five I had recited the entire Quran in Arabic and memorized the last seven chapters. By age 15 I had committed the last 15 chapters of the Quran to memory in both English and Arabic. Every day I recited countless prayers in Arabic, thanking Allah, thanking the one God for another day upon waking, invoking his name before falling asleep. But it's one thing to be steeped in remembrance, and it's quite another to bear witness. My grandfather and great-grandfather were Muslim missionaries. They spent their entire lives preaching Islam to unbelievers in Indonesia and in Uganda. My genes carried their zeal. By middle school, I had learned how to challenge Christians, whose theology I could break down just by asking questions. Focusing on the identity of Jesus, I'd ask, well, Jesus worshipped God, so why do you worship Jesus? Or Jesus said, the Father is greater than I, so how could he be God? If I really wanted to throw Christians for a loop, I would ask them to explain the Trinity. They usually responded, it's a mystery. In my heart, I mocked their ignorance, saying, the only mystery here is how you could believe in something as ridiculous and foolish as Christianity. Bolstered by the conversation I had with Christians, I felt confident in the truth of Islam. It gave me discipline, purpose, morality, 
family values, clear direction for worship. Islam was the lifeblood that coursed through my veins. Islam was my identity, and I loved it. I boldly issued the call of Islam to anyone and everyone who would listen, proclaiming that there is no God but the one God, and Muhammad is his messenger. And it was there, at the top of the minaret of my Islamic life, that Jesus called to me. As a freshman at Old Dominion University in Virginia, I was befriended by a sophomore, David Wood. Soon after he extended a helping hand, I found him reading a Bible. Incredulous that someone as clearly intelligent as he would actually read Christian's sacred text, I launched a barrage of apologetic attacks, from questioning the reliability of Scripture to denying Jesus' crucifixion to, of course, challenging the Trinity and the deity of Christ. And David didn't react like other Christians I had challenged. He, he didn't waver in his witness, nor did he waver in his friendship with me. Far from it. He became even more engaged, answering questions that he could respond to, investigating questions he couldn't respond to, and spending time with me through it all. Even though he was a Christian, his zeal for God was something I understood, and I respected it. We quickly became best friends signing up for events together, going to classes together, studying for exams together. All the while we argued about the historical foundations of Christianity, some classes we signed up for just so we could argue more. After three years of investigating the origins of Christianity, I concluded that the case for Christianity was strong, that the Bible, the case was strong, that the Bible could be trusted, and that Jesus died on a cross, even that he rose from the dead and that he claimed to be God. And then David challenged me to study Islam as critically as I had studied Christianity. I learned about Muhammad from imams and my parents, not from historical sources themselves. And when I finally read the sources, I found that the prophet was not the man that I had thought. His earliest biographies are filled with violence, with sensuality, the stories of the man I revered as the holiest man in history were suddenly in question. I was shocked by what I learned, and so I began to lean on the Quran as my defense. But when I turned an eye there, the foundation crumbled just as quickly. I relied on its miraculous knowledge and perfect preservation as a sign that it was inspired by God, but both beliefs ended up faltering before research. Overwhelmed and confused by the evidence for Christianity and the weakness of the Islamic case, I began seeking Allah for help. Or was he Jesus? I didn't know any longer. I needed to hear from God himself who he was. Growing up in a Muslim community, I had seen others implore God for guidance many times. And the way that Muslims often expect to hear from God is through dreams and through visions. And in the summer after graduating from Old Dominion, I began imploring God daily, Tell me who you are. If you are Allah, show me how to believe in you. And if you are Jesus, then tell me, whoever you are, I will follow you, no matter the cost. By the end of my first year in medical school, God had given me a vision and three dreams, the second of which was the most powerful. In it, I was standing at the threshold of a strikingly narrow door, watching people take their seats at a wedding banquet. And I desperately wanted to get in, but I wasn't able to enter because I had not accepted my friend David's invitation to the wedding. And when I woke up, 
I knew what God was telling me. But I sought further verification. It was then that I found the parable of the narrow door in Luke 13. God was showing me where I stood. I still couldn't walk through the door, though. How could I betray my family? After all they had done for me, by becoming a Christian, not only would I lose all connection with the Muslim community around me, but my family would lose their very honor as well. My decision would not only destroy me, it would destroy my family, my mother, my father, the ones who loved me most and sacrificed the most for me. I began mourning the impact of the decision I knew I had to make. And on the first day of my second year of medical school, it became too much to bear. Yearning for comfort, I decided to skip school. I returned to my apartment and I placed the Quran and the Bible both right in front of me. And I turned to the Quran, but there was no comfort for me there. For the first time, the book seemed utterly irrelevant to my suffering, irrelevant to my life. It felt for the first time like a dead book. And with nowhere left to go, I opened up the New Testament and I just started reading. And very quickly, I came across a passage that said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It was electricity. The words left off, leapt off the page and jump-started my heart. I couldn't put the Bible down. I began reading through it fervently. I reached Matthew 10, which taught me that I must love God more than even my mother and father. But Jesus, I said, accepting you would be like dying. I would have to give up everything. And the next verses, the very next verses, spoke to me directly and said, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. But he who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He says Jesus was being very blunt. For a Muslim, following the gospel is more than a call to prayer. Following the gospel for a Muslim is a call to die. I knelt at the foot of my bed, and I gave up my life. A few days later, the two people I love most in this world were shattered by my betrayal. To this day, my family is broken by the decision I made, and it is excruciating every time I see the cost I had to pay. But Jesus is the God of reversal and redemption. He redeemed sinners to live by his death. He redeemed a symbol of execution by repurposing it for my salvation. He redeemed my suffering by making me rely upon him for my every moment, bending my heart toward him. And it was there in my pain that I knew him and knew him intimately. He reached me through investigations, through dreams, through visions, and he called me to prayer in my suffering. And it was there that I found Jesus Christ, the Son of God, my Savior. And to follow him, he writes, is worth giving up everything. A soil that bears fruit 30 times, 60 times, 100 times what was sown. That's the power of Jesus to take a barren life and bring it to life fruitful and overflowing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, I thank you for the power of your gospel, for the power of